And we are live with our 146th episode of Absolute AppSec. I am Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my lovely co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode. I know we've been off for a couple of weeks with, yeah, vacation. I've been under the weather. You can probably hear it in my voice a little bit, uh, but we're excited to be back today. It's not a COVID. It's not. I have been tested. You can't catch it through your earphones or however you're listening, through your speakers, whatever. Um. Yeah. So now I'm completely distracted. (laughs) As far as things that are going on, uh, there's really not a lot on our fall schedule outside of the normal podcast. Um, We do have James Kettle coming up next week, uh, which should be a great uh, opportunity for both of us to ask him a bunch of questions, um, see how he does research. I like, there's all sorts of things that I have on my list. I know Ken, you as well have questions for James on, you know, how he got into the community, how he got started, all that kind of stuff, just because he is such a big name coming from Port Swigger right now. Um, but out, outside of that, um, and Ken's going to post up a link right here really quick. Yeah. Uh, if you have questions for James, please get them over to us. You can use that Google form if you would like to, or you can DM us or jump jump into our Slack channel. However you want, uh, we would take uh, any extra questions that we can curate for James during this time. Uh, and But do get them in maybe before the day of, uh, just so we kind of have a plan for what we're going to ask him. Um, otherwise, uh, I know there was a couple of things, like here locally for me in um, the Mountain West, we've got... Uh, St. Con's coming up. Forward CloudSec is going on. It, w- it started yesterday. It's going today. If you go to their website, you can actually stream the talks that are going right now. Um, it's all online, but there is some in-person stuff that's going as well. Um, but there's been some really interesting talks coming out of there. We can probably uh, filter those out and talk about them at another time again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- yeah, I, I think that's everything that I've got on my radar right now. Do you have anything else that's that's popping up? Not event-wise, like, you know, kind of in a holding pattern for events to come back online. So obviously we have a ton of news to talk about today. Well, just things going on. But yeah, from a upcoming events perspective, it's obviously a little dry. So yeah. Yeah, good, good times good living times. in 2021. Yeah, which is still kind of to be expected with you know, how people are reacting right now. I do feel like this this formula that um, the forward cloud sec is following where they they have in person with online, kind of like what DEF CON did as well. I, I think we're going to start seeing more of that um, where they give people a choice on, you know, how comfortable they are in attending or not. So hopefully we'll get back to it. That's all. That's all. <laughs> but... Um, speaking of which, and I know this one probably wasn't top of your list, Ken, but, um, I, we had questions on it yesterday. Ken and I, you know, did a small OWASP meetup, uh, but the new iteration of the OWASP top 10 is almost finalized, right? Um, it is public and they have posted out, posted the draft out for peer review. Yes. Um, 
I don't know. Ken, have you been through the list? I mean, I, I, I know you probably have because we know Brian, but what are your thoughts? Oh, my goodness. It's a little a little early for me to have thoughts, uh, to be honest with you. I'm looking at this diagram here um, just real quick. Let me see if I can share up my screen. Uh, computer stuff is hard. Let's see. Windows. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So I was just looking at this diagram as you're kind of talking about it. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you see that diagram? Uh, yeah. Yep. We can. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little uh, uh, weird, of course. But so I guess in 2017, we had injection at the first spot and that's moving into the third spot. I don't know. Like here, is this going to be just SQL injection or is this going to be like Ah, finally. Yes. I love it. Thank you. Cross-site <laughs> scripting. Now part of injection. That's wonderful. Um, yes. Perfect. Because that's all it is. It's just content injection. So that's great. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to see that. It's my first thought. And then broken authentication is moved down to identification and authentication failures. So let's scroll down there. And it's previously broken authentication, sliding down from the second position. Uh, it's not super, not, I mean, in-depth, that description, because it just basically says, um, for those who are listening and I don't, can't see my screen, uh, category, the, 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 it doesn't really actually, so the, the actual paragraph says, was previously broken authentication is sliding down from the second position and now includes CWEs that are more related to identification failures. That is not really super in-depth for me to understand what has changed there. But um, yeah, I am looking forward to uh, parsing down a little bit more into that. There's, um, uh, this is what Brian had showed when he came on the podcast and was talking about the draft OS top 10, this, uh, this chart here, how they all kind of just feed into each other. Um, Venn diagram with overlap. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. My first impression is it's, you know, OWASP top 10, another, another change, um, probably more data driven. Brian Glass is, you know, really big on um, collecting ma massive amount of data, massive amounts of data, but also making sure it's, you know, valuable data. Um, it's, it's formatted in such a way that we can, make some sense of it and it's rational. So I have pretty good confidence in like the data analysis part of all of this. Um, let's see here. Wow. Wait, that's interesting. So SSRF, that is a, an entire category now for aid. Yep. So that's actually one thing I guess that I would take away from um, this is being pretty significant is the server is that server side request forgery has its own category. This is an awareness doc, right, Seth? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I know talking with Brian specifically, that was one of the um, industry survey vulnerabilities. So the so nine and 10, those are not ones that um, are coming out of the data. Those are, hey, this is what the industry sees as critical or crucial right now. Hence the reason that it's an awareness document. Um, so we're going to include those and then maybe eventually that's going to slide back up into injection, right? Because I mean, server-side request forgery is probably, it is a form of injection, right? At some layer um, and some, so I, 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 but it is significant, right? Like I, I think we're seeing more and more of it 
Uh, we'll see if it has the same effect as like XXE and some of those others that were in that, those past versions that really didn't materialize as much. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. Right. Like I, I know everyone's going to have opinions here. Uh, yeah. I already and, have one thinking yeah. about, even though I love that SSRF has its own category, just because if this is an awareness doc, it does make you like, it's more to the forefront uh, bringing SSRF more to the forefront from an awareness perspective by having its own category. However, however, I have to say my first reaction is why is it not part of injection since it mm -hmm. technically is an injection? Um, but I, again, I'm sure there's a reason I'm sure I probably haven't read far enough down yet. And I'm sure there, it, it may, and honestly, it may just come down to like, Hey, we, this is an awareness doc. We're trying to make people aware of SSRF. And so we're going to do it that way. But again, my first reactions, <laughs> it is kind of an injection thing. So then I'm going to look at like software integrity and or software and data integrity failures, because it looks like insecure deserialization has been kind of stripped and um, possibly put into that. So that's a eight. Yeah. Um, this new category focusing on making assumptions related to software updates, critical data and CI CD pipelines without verifying integrity. Hmm. Okay. So I, I guess that's maybe like, that's probably if you're running stuff in a CI CD pipeline, bringing in libraries, not doing any verification of those libraries, maybe um, same to same with updates. Like if you're installing updates and not doing potentially any, integrity checks on those updates maybe that's what that relates to so yeah again, I, I think it's a little take. bit more in close inclusive there but yeah that one will be i don't, I don't know there, there are some of these it'll be interesting to see how it falls out right like how often they get used um mm. i know from training off of the 2017 list that it was helpful at times Right. But there was stuff that we just kind of glossed over, um, mainly right. because. Yeah, I, mainly because we just never saw it. Right. Or it was so specific to a, a, to certain technologies or industries that maybe we just didn't get into it. So um, and that and that's no knock on Brian like and, and the OWASP top 10 team, because I know they've done, they've had hours and hours of discussions about what's going into this? Why are we doing this? Um, it's an awareness document, how it should be used, right? Like what's the intention behind it? If you want a complete like um, list of items to look through and vulnerabilities, go to ASVS, right? That's, that's always been their, their go-to when you have complaints about your favorite vulnerability. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we'll just see. Uh, basically, is what I'm I'm trying to say. Like, I, I'm not like I'm not disappointed with the list in and of itself. I think it's going to be fine, right? Like, I, yeah, it, it's hard to get excited about an awareness document. <laughs> <laughs> well, but a lot of I people is, do, right? Yeah, yeah and I actually, this this is what I notice is that there's this how to use the OS top ten as a standard section. I I'm kind of keying in on that because I have never seen that before. This is actually the first time I'm seeing that. Um, so it's interesting to, to see this. This is very cool. Like basically they're saying, yes, it's an awareness document. 
However, it hasn't stopped people from using it as some sort of AppSec standard, right? Since 2003. Um, so what I think is interesting is they actually give like a cheat. Uh, if you're only listening to this podcast, I do recommend you hop on the YouTube video to check this out so you can see it or just visit the link that um, we had given previously. You can navigate there. Um, so, but anyways, it, it just talks about like, uh, they've got this little table here and it says sort of, it gives on the left use cases. So you got awareness, training, design and architecture, coding standards, secure code review, peer review checklist. And then it gives you like, does this, should this be used, right? In that capacity. So for awareness, it says yes, for training entry level, design and architecture occasionally, for a lot of these, it's either occasionally or bare minimum, meaning it's not like supposed to be your, it's not really supposed to be used in this capacity. So like the bare minimum looks like tool support, pen testing, because um, you do see that frequently. If you're a consultant and you've, you know, sent out or been a part of like the, the SAL scope uh, statement of work rather uh, being sent out to customers, this is what usually goes in there is like, we will make sure that we test against the OWASP top 10 uh, and similar vulnerabilities, blah, 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 blah. But the reason that's usually thrown in there is that companies, oftentimes they want to have that summary statement that says you have OWASP top 10 uh, included in your testing. And that can even be traced back to a lot of times when they get an audit, maybe it's a SOC auditor or something like that. They're like, well, did you get a third party pen test? Okay, did it cover the OWASP top 10? Uh, so it's, you know, like it, this this stuff's all linked and, and yeah. Um, yeah, I, I completely blame PCI, right? PCI was the first one that just took the OS top 10 and put it in there. And uh, like, it didn't even think about it being like, oh, it wasn't comprehensive. They just dropped it straight in. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, they've since changed. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, things are getting better. People are getting smarter and wiser. But yeah. in any case, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess I can stop sharing now, I think. Go back to other stuff. We've got other stuff to talk about. Yeah. Any final thoughts about that, though? About uh, the uh, no, just go check it in. I mean, be a part of the solution on that one, right? Like, I know Brian and his team love, you know, at least feedback on what the, the different topics are, uh, what should be included in each one, right? How to kind of classify vulnerabilities. Um, but I, I, like, I highly doubt that most people that are just drive-by commenting on it have put the same level of care and feeding and research into, into those topics as Brian and his team has. It, it wasn't a willy-nilly, you know, hey, I have a have favorite vulnerability. It was definitely a, a full-on process. And they've been working it on, on it for, I, I think, since 2019, right? I know they have. So, yeah. You know, it, and sometimes you see people, um, you know, kind of, crap on the OWASP top 10 or, um, you know, I don't know, say it's irrelevant or things like that. The truth is, it's not irrelevant. Um, it is an awareness document. Uh, it is useful um, to have the ability to categorize. Like, for instance, if you, oh, I see, sorry, I see some sidebar stuff going on. I was like, what, what what's going on? Um, but if you take it as it's intended, as an awareness document, and you factor in how much care has been taken. And, you know, it's the OWASP top 10 is always scrutinized. There's always a huge debate about it. it there's always what, you know, people call it trauma. It's never, that's never going to go away. You have highly passionate and opinionated people from around the globe weighing in on something that's used 
around the globe. Again, as an awareness document. So if it's treated as such, there is value in that. I mean, so anyways, I guess what I'm saying is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, don't think that, you know, just because it was at one point used as a compliance standard that it's no longer like it. Yes, it was used in kind of what I would describe as a, uh, it was used incorrectly. And, but I think if you use it in the right context, um, it's, it's very helpful. So, yep. Cool. Anyways. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So what do you want to talk about next, Ken? Yeah, we could talk about, um, all right. I think the couple things, uh, that are interesting. So there are, there are a couple things there's, there's one is the, uh, HA proxy, um, request smuggling vulnerability found by JFrog with a CV attached to it. Um, CV 2021-40346. We've got, uh, we've also got um, the, oh my goodness, what am I trying to say? Can't talk today. Um, The Apple sort of uh, bug bounty kerfuffle complaint about the bounty payout where the researcher thought they were going to get a hundred, they should get a hundred K for their uh, vulnerability. And they got something like five K. And uh, like I said, a little bit of drama there. So it's really, uh, you also, you have some good ones too. I don't know if you want to talk about the iMessage zero click exploit, which I think is a good, I do think maybe we start with that and then we can lead into the, like it leads us kind of into the, the whole Apple article I was just talking about. Okay. Yeah, hold on here. We'll post this up here. Anybody who's been following Apple stuff in the last day has seen all of the alerts on, oh, crap, go update your phone right now, right? Or your watch or whatever, right? Like if you're running iOS. Um, And so basically what has happened is um, the NSO Pegasus team was analyzing... um, a Saudi activist phone and discovered a zero day, zero click exploit. Um, So basically against Apple's image rendering library, there's a problem when it, like when iMessage accepts a, an image, you can mouth, you know, you can create a malformed image that will then exploit the device. Great. Right. Um, My issue here is, like, okay, the fact that this group, whoever was using this exploit, based on what NSO is saying, has been doing it since February of 2021, right? All right, we've discovered it. We know that people have zero days, O days, whatever you want to call them, um, that they target specific individuals. Guess what? If you're a soccer mom living in Ohio, you're not going to be targeted by this sort of an O-Day. You're just not, right? Um, and the fact that we discovered it outside of, again, DEF CON and Black Hat, um, the people that go there and are like, hey, I have to bring my burner phone. No one is wasting O-Days on individuals that are not high value and high, like that have access to, data that it like it, you're not a uh you're not a state actor right like i i just 
So, yeah, because they if they go to just to clarify that if they go and exploit somebody's phone, that gets detected. You've burned your ode on mm -hmm. for no reason, just for fun, right? Exactly. These things cost millions of dollars to actually like for groups that purchase these. These are we're talking multi million dollar costs points for remote um, backdoor yeah. style malware. You don't you don't buy those and then use them arbitrarily or create them and use them arbitrarily. You sell them for a lot of money. This is a big high dollar game that we're talking about here. Yeah. So anyway, and sorry. I mean, no, no, no. You're, you're absolutely right. And th and that that's the reason why you don't see that sort of stuff pop up on the DefCon network. You don't see it pop up as uh, just drive-by hacks that are going on that someone is targeting, you know, random people in, you know, in, in the States or in other places because they want to use that for as long as possible against targets that they value. Right. Um, it's a whole, it, it becomes a whole investment proposition. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go and update your devices. You should have, you know, automatic updates going on. Like Apple has fixed this. The problem that I have with the language and the articles that are coming out around those updates is again, Ken, this goes back to this whole fear that, uh, that the industry pushes out as far as, crap, you better go do this right now or you're going to get hacked. Um, if anything, it's probably causing other uh, like people that like script kitties to actually go do research into what's going on to try and create something so they can screw around with it quicker. Um, but at the same time, it, it doesn't have that the same level of urgency as some of the other things you're you as a consumer as an individual as like even a security professional is pro are probably more likely to get you know to have a compromised account through one of through breach data and through an insecure password than you are being targeted by uh, someone using an ode for iOS I, I mean unless I'm wrong Ken unless I'm wrong I, I don't think you're wrong yeah. I, I mean, it doesn't mean that because I said that somebody wouldn't target me because they're like, oh, he just really doesn't care. It's not that you shouldn't follow and, and make, you know, make sure that you are up to date and all that kind of stuff. It's just that we have a tendency to focus so much on these sorts of ODAs and these sorts of problems when we're not doing general security hygiene. Yeah. And on that note, of on that note, I'm trying to remember the, hold on. I use this app called iVerify. And I don't know what various people's opinions of it are. Um, it's developed by, gosh, one of the security companies out there that we're familiar with. And I cannot, Trail of Bits. Yeah, Trail of Bits. Um, where Stefan worked. Um, mm -hmm. But anyways, I like the app a lot. Um, and it gives me like notifications about things that maybe like if I've configured, you know, thing it, stupid things like allowing certain things to be accessible from the, the lock screen um, gives you, you know, if there's a new update out, they'll immediately notify you, push a notification to your phone. Like, Hey, just, so you know, like you need to update for this reason. Um, and there's just like a lot of guides in it and a lot of um, different configurations you can turn off or you can change to secure. So I verify, you know, I don't know about you, Seth, but I have that. I paid for it. I like it. Um, yeah, and, and no, I mean, we're not sponsored. We don't have any sponsors, so it's just saying that because I like the, the the thing, and I don't have any affiliation with Trail Bits or anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go to iVerify.io, you can check it out. Um, it, I mean, it's just a matter of again of 
of using security hygiene, right? Like uh, of, of doing the little things that I, I feel like that's where we fall down. That's where we as developers fall down all the time, right? We take shortcuts. We're like, oh, well, I'm not going to worry about, you know, that password or that whatever, because it's, it's just too hard. And that, that ends up being the weak link in the chain. Um, if someone is targeting you with the amount of resources and money that these large organizations have to develop something like this forced entry uh, app, uh, you're probably never going to know. Uh, like, I'm going to be honest, right? Like without, without some sort of intervention from other agencies and governmental organizations. So it's just like, do what you know you should be doing and then move on uh, is realistically my, <laughs> my take on the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I just am like, like I'm just frustrated because I see this all over the place, right? You know, it's popping up in all of the news feeds and all these channels. And I'm just like, man, like, wouldn't we better off be better off telling people to go like rotate their, you know, online banking credentials for the first time in 10 years. Um, right. Like what, what's going to have a, a more material effect on security. Right. Yeah. So anyway, what's the practice? Well, then this leads, leads, leads directly into our next article, which is, um, and let me put this in the absolute absec slack. Yeah, and as a reminder, while I'm bringing this up, uh, we do have a Slack channel. So if you're listening, um, I would highly recommend checking out the Slack channel to communicate. Um, I know lately we've been a little infrequent with communications, but that's just because of like, I have stuff going on, stuff, uh, you know, and for me, when I say stuff going on, it's like uh, big events in my life, personal life, good stuff. But, uh, and then for Seth, he's... Um, uh, you know, he's been sick for, for a couple weeks now. So, yeah. Um, but anyways, check us out on Slack, uh, go in there, communicate with others. You can see some links, um, that we've posted. Okay. So, uh, going back in here and also you can DM us if you ever have questions. Um, but anyways, uh, so this is basically an, an ethical hacker that was not exactly happy with the outcome of their bug bounty submission. This happens all the time. You know, as I had mentioned earlier, this researcher submitted to the Apple program, um, felt that the exploit that they had was worth about 100K. Uh, and in fact, they got paid 5K. The uh, Apple's head of secure, security, Ivan Kristek, I want to say, maybe I'm saying that wrong. Probably I'm saying that wrong. Um, had acknowledged that, you know, there, um, yeah, there's some like things that they can improve on within their program, but their program, you know, pays millions of dollars, um, already this year has paid a couple million dollars in bounties. Um, so, you know, it's, it's having, I gotta say this, having worked on a bug bounty for four years, uh, it is there, you always have to take what people say with a grain of salt. You always do because, um, you know, there's the side of the researcher, the side of the company and everywhere in between. Um, and, you know, doesn't just because one side has. Both sides could be saying their piece absolutely correctly and, you know, uh, being very legitimate and there still might be some, but like, you know, there's still some, some friction there. Um, it's the nature of a bug bounty. You may not like your payout. You may not like the response times. You may not like disclosure. Uh, the company itself may not have the best 
um, way of scoring things. So it might be a little too subjective and leave, leave a little too much room for um, interpretation. And uh, that can lead to some of those feelings. But anyways, um, yeah, so basically they talked about uh, a couple points that really tie in well with what you're just talking about. So, um, sorry, let me pull up the actual, I'm actually trying to find the, by the way, this, this vulnerability just allowed you to install malicious software on a Mac computer and cir circumvent mm -hmm. Apple's uh, protections for that. So that was what they felt like was a hundred K, but what I'm trying to get down to here is, okay. So they kind of talk about the, they call it, they, uh, Zerodium, they talk about Zerodium, but really it could be any number of companies that buy these, um, types of vulnerabilities. And so what they what they basically say, if I'm correctly summarizing is that researchers come to these programs because of yes, they get paid, but they could get paid double. So for instance, a million dollar exploit sold to Apple, which is, uh, basically any remote code, um, execution, especially with phones that gets you into a phone without, um, like I said, any user interaction, that's a million dollar uh, bug bounty and under Apple's eyes. But again, Zerodium will pay about 2 million, right? And there's other places that'll pay more. Um, and that goes back to sort of what Seth was saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, speaking like, of which, these burn? zero days. Yeah, why right. would you burn a million dollars to uh, hack someone during DEF CON? Right? Like, it, it, or 2 million, right? Like it just, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah, and like the, he's the, this researcher, um, basically says that, you know, the reason that people don't uh, go to the black market um, first and they try to go through uh, the bug bounty programs is because of like a sense of ethics, um, you know, trying to do some goodwill. Um, that may be true. I also think there's the legal aspect of like, if you get in serious trouble, is it worth it? Um, so I think that both things can also be true. Um but it brings up just a, 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 you know, it highlights, I guess, uh, to me, the fact that people are paying top dollar for exploits, that um, your bug bounty programs should make researchers feel uh, valued so that they don't go elsewhere. Um, I think that's absolutely true. Um, do I think this particular research, I don't know enough about this exploit. There's no details here that I can really uh, find and pull up, but um Oh, I'm, I, excuse me. That's not true. I, I take that back. There is, there is actually, a, um, this article here it gives actually, no, that doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, not a ton of, it basically a bypasses gatekeeper is what it says. There's not a ton of technical details. I'll put this article. It's linked from that original article. So it's, it's hard for me to comment on the actual vulnerability itself, but, um, I just think it does highlight kind of what you're talking about is that, there, there's a real um, market there for for O days on on the Apple plat platform. Having mm -hmm. said all of this, though, man, like it's if you're Apple, it has got to be hard to get it right because you do have a ton of submissions, a ton of product lines. There's a bit of distrust for the, of course, there's a bit of distrust for any big um, tech company right now, um, and, and even not just right now, like there always has been, right? So you're, you're a target. People might naturally distrust you. It might be really hard to run a bug bounty program is my point, but yeah, you don't want, you don't want, uh, O days being dropped outside of your bug bounty program. 
Yeah, and, and and actually, this is interesting, Ken, because uh, Jason Haddix has been commenting on the YouTube chat, um, oh, and I sorry, know I he see. he has opinions. So, I, like, I'm going to see if we can pull him in really quick because it'd be interesting to get his take. Uh, for those of you that don't know Jason, um, he actually helped. He worked at Bug Crowd for years and years. Was one of their top bug bounty guys. Um, helped actually build that that company out. And has a lot of experience running kind of both sides of bug bounties. Uh, so maybe we'll pull him in here if we can get him a link somehow. I was just going to, maybe I was going to DM him something. Yeah, um, I'm going to give him the Slack link uh, first yeah. before you give him the StreamYard one. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't going to drop the StreamYard one in there. Um, yeah, just drop it into public YouTube chat. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you need me to um, give him the link? Um, let's see. I was going to see if I could find J Haddix. Um, actually, I think I, I can do this. I can drop it to him through. If he wants to join. Yeah, for sure. Looks like he might've just joined Slack. Oh, he did. So okay. stand, stand by y'all. Stand by. This could be yep. very interesting. Um, I, I mean, my thoughts on, I don't know, right? Like, because I, I help a couple small companies right, that run their bug bounty programs, right? And uh, as, a, as an outsider, both to the company and to the researcher, I feel like most of my time is spent jockeying or lobbying between, you know, both for the company and for the researcher, right? Um, whereas... I, like and so I, I kind of have this split personality when it comes to bug bounty submissions, just because it uh, like it it is such a I don't I don't know like I, like it's a fine line to walk because there is you know there's the side of the researcher the amount of time that they've put into it the things that they found what they've been able to do with the bug and then there's also the company side where it's like hey guess what the only thing you accessed was you know qa or test data it's it's not a production problem and so you end up you know walking this line but we do have jason haddix joining hey, us. guys hey it's good to see you thanks for joining yeah, that's awesome you guys too yeah, yeah. I saw you guys on Twitter and I was like, oh, this is a juicy topic. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for joining. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, so, like, as we're jumping into it, right, like uh, Ken was going through Apple's huge program and how much money they pay out. Um, and then, like, that uh, kind of the, the dichotomy of the, you know, hey, app, you know, the researcher thinks it was worth $100,000. Apple only paid him five thousand. What's going on there? I, I like. What are your thoughts on that? Um, and then we'll, we can dive into other topics from there. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of variables, right? To to these stories. Um, one is the one that came out yesterday, and, and like the article that talked about the inconsistency, and um, and there's there's also the one I'm thinking of is the group of researchers Nahamsek and kind of all of his buddies got together and hacked them for about an aggregate of six hundred k, I think. Um, you know, months ago, um, this was like maybe six months ago and yep. they found some stuff too. And, um, you know, it's, it, what's really hard is that when you set a bug bounty scope, 
you have to set these kind of arbitrary like top end limits to start with right so you, on the business side you don't just blow through your budget right like it's it sucks in the real world but there is actually a budget for security organization which usually runs the bug bounty and only some places are getting to the point right now where um where bug bounty is actually like an executive conversation it's a risk management conversation where they can say yeah you have no top end we're trying to reduce the risk via this means and um and we're willing to pay we're willing to publicize that we have no cap on you know this type of thing but um uh, you know apple does have some stated uh some stated you know like uh ios based uh bug bounty uh, payout guidelines and they are much higher than things like bypassing you know um their in-app like inspection they're much higher than um, breaking into their infrastructure via web apps, right? Which is what the 500K crew did. I mean, that's what I'm going to call them collectively. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so like, uh, you know, they got to kind of live in this world where they could decide at any given point because they hadn't defined, right? They basically said the program's open to anything you find, but we have this internal council that's going to decide how much each one is worth. And I'm I'm guessing that that internal council internally to Apple is actually an amalgamation of like six security groups across the organization, right? It's like vulnerability management. It's like the red team. It's the actual group that runs bug bounty. And I'm sure, you know, there is like a, a level of which they all report to, um, but I'm sure it's a shared responsibility. And so uh, sometimes you can get this call right, and sometimes you can get this call wrong. For this specific vulnerability, though, the the one recently in the last couple of days, the bypassing of the security stuff. I don't know if that was like a million dollar bug. I think it's I think it's bad. Uh, you know, if I was on that council, I would argue for something like ten, fifteen k, just off the top of my head. You know, it's it's pretty bad, but it's not like um, people got in from the outside. Uh, and then I would have argued for more for the 500k crew, honestly, irregardless if they were they're my friends or irregardless is not a word, but irregardless that they're my friends and I know them in the bug bounty community, those guys used SSRF to get from the public internet to internal Apple systems with source code on them. And those guys should have been paid the million, million dollar yeah. bounty. So <laughs> those, are my, those are some of my that. opinions. Yeah. yeah. No, and you're, you're absolutely right. Like at, at uh, yeah, so with GitHub, we've, we, we do have a like top end amount, but we do leave room for um, adding bonuses. So even if you like top end, I forget what ours is. It might be like 30K or something like that. I, I honestly don't remember, but you can always like, and I do, we've actually, I think it was yesterday or Friday, we had a researcher who um, found another cool vulnerability. And, you know, just because this researcher has been submitting frequently, and they've been impact very impactful bugs. Um, we did we did a bonus amount, proposed some a bonus bonus amount. So I yeah. think the using that is a good tool if you, yeah. But I mean, from a budget perspective, um, I know we have allotted amounts, and those get uh, dumped into our Hacker One account. Um, you know, periodically. I don't know. One thing I don't know is what happens like if you blow through that budget, I assume it just gets refilled on our end, but um, I'm not sure how that works for other companies. It, it just Budgeting. gets refilled. Yeah. 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 Finance does yeah. not like that, that model, right? They like yeah. everything to be exactly. finite yearly. <laughs> yearly stuff. Yeah. Well, because you go in with like a based off of, you know, history, you know, this, I mean, yeah. historic 
trends you go in based off of that and sort of also pad for for more but yeah, yeah i have no idea like what happens when that amount uh is exceeded um yeah at other yeah. places again i know how it goes for us some so. some of the horror stories are usually at the beginning though right when you first open the bug bounty to public right it's like i mean the curve is like hundreds of vulnerabilities p2 P and p1 in the bug crowd rating are critical in the hacker one rating in the first few weeks and then it slowly starts to die down over over time um so you know usually if, if you're listening and you're interested in the bug bounty topic like allocate your highest amount of budget that you can get from your leadership at the beginning of the program when it's going to launch public. <laughs> and then it will taper down. I promise it will taper down over time. You'll get spikes every once in a while, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to do as a leader, right. To, to budget the bug bounty. It, it really is. Um, and then you have platform fees on top of it and like bonuses, if you want to be responsible and um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a lot to, lot to think about, but I would say it's worth it. Every, Every bug bounty, I continue to tell people that bug bounty is a is a worthwhile means of reducing risk. So, oh yeah, yeah. You know. I I mean that and that yeah, that's the constant discussion that I have. Well, even on the private bug bounty side, right? Like you know, if I can't convince a company to go public completely, I'm like, mm. all right, we're going to add as many researchers yeah. as we can. You know, yeah. month after month after month, because if yeah. we don't, it doesn't stay healthy. Right? Yeah, it, correct. We, we yeah. just we don't have. I mean, people looking at it and mm -hmm. you have a false sense of security as far as what is my real risk. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Sorry, Ken, I interrupted you. No, I think I didn't No, I think I interrupted you, interrupted you, but Jason had mentioned in the beginning, he, he had said, uh, you know, I mentioned like executive leadership sort of paying attention to the bug bounty for us. One thing that helps, um, and you know, maybe other people can do this as well is for each of our services or apps, whatever you want to call it. We have a service catalog and when a submission comes in, it's attached to a specific uh, service as, you know, whatever like the vulnerability is with whatever impact it has. Um, all of that gets tracked and reported against that service. Right. So, and I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say against, but it is, it is true. It's, it will negatively impact your service scorecard if you have like a big high impact vulnerability that's been sitting there for for a while and more importantly that scorecard gets reported on bot sorry to the executive leadership so the leadership essentially has okay let's run through services that are failing on their scorecards and let's ask why mm -hmm. what do you need to get these things uh fixed and then again, the conversations like, where did it come from? Then you start talking about your bug bounty program. For us, that gave executive level leadership uh, a lot of eyes into what is actually happening on the ground floor level. So, yeah. You know, what's interesting about that conversation is that's that's a pretty cool way to do it, but works really well kind of only with a, a place that sells security as a feature, right? Because the business is thinking about, um, you know, this is part of our strat plan and our go-to-market plan is like being the most secure, you know, code repository in the world, right? But when you have a different type of business, which is um, not B2B um, or, you know, hybrid B2C, right? Becomes a harder conversation when people don't view security as a product feature. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then you're just asking development teams who are building internal software or something like that to take on a portion of the cost of the bug bounty. And it's a tricky conversation to have. Uh, it does boil down to like, you know, a, a higher level 
ephemeral question of like, you know, is, is security important to development even when it's not a feature, right? But um, but at the end of the day, those are the conversations that you end up having is like, you know, why should they help you out with the strain of this on the budget? Why should it be visible and tracked across the business on every app, right? Why do you have an app inventory? What do you do? How do you build an app inventory, right? I don't know if you guys have done a segment yet on attack surface mapping or app inventory in, in the modern era yet, but that's a, that's a cool one then, uh, to look into that space, so. It's uh, it's it's badly needed for sure, right? Okay. Like, I, it's the, I I mean we we've discussed app inventories and just you know how how difficult it is to actually put something like that together, especially yeah. like uh, like when we had Jivan on talking about threat modeling, like uh, yeah, you know if you're threat modeling an organization, you have yeah. to start with you have yeah you have to know what you have right yeah exactly yeah and and we've struggled with this in it and security and you know mm. from an organization level for years and years so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean you know using bug bounty as your app inventory is probably not the smartest way to go about it just you know it's it's interesting because we've you know, I'm just rolling this out, so I, I'm not going to claim I'm an expert, but I'm, I'm a recon head, so I know the methods as to yeah. which people find find assets. Um, the method as to how to track them internally, we I've split it up into two categories, external, internal. Internal assets is going to be a large problem that's going to be dealt with usually by um, you know, like a, a real system like CMDB or something like that, right? But um, there are more uh, systems these days that are uh, that are for your public internet space that live more in the realm of vulnerability management kind of platforms. Yeah. Um, there's several of them. And we, we decided to use one of those platforms um, to track and then several input sources to identify. And so one of the input sources is like a, a company that does asset identification on the web, which finds those edge, which is supposed to automatically like a scanner, find those edge cases um, and gives us some vulnerability details on top of what we do with like a vulnerability scanner and our red team and the bounty finds. And then uh, further down the line, we plan to run actually a recon bounty, um, which, uh, you know, once we've run the scanner for several months, we'll run like a specific recon head bounty, kind of like security trails did, where they were like, give us all the assets you can find on the internet to improve our service. We'll do the same thing. We'll pay a small amount for people who can find assets that weren't in our asset inventory or external asset inventory. and. Um, we feel like after a year, that plan will have given us like a 90, 98, 99% view of everything that's out there. And then our job is to categorize every asset by risk, you know, somehow build, uh, take our rubric that we have internal, focus it to external, um, build the rubric of how we rate risk for each asset, apply an owner tag, which is the biggest part, um, you know, who owns these servers, who, you know, what cloud range are there. You know, what do they have deployed on them already as far as security controls? Uh, who are the points of contact? And then we'll have a really good asset inventory, at least externally, to to measure against. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, that's the first. Uh, well, it's cool to see that you're actually using that. I, I know I've had discussions, and I, ha I helped a couple of companies do something similar using your, you know, the bug bounty methodology. And the, oh, nice. You know, Very cool. <laughs> to, to actually figure out what they had externally, right? Yeah. Because they just were so blind to it. Oh, yeah, the bigger you get, the bigger you get as an organization, the harder it is. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to be like, oh, I know we have this IPA space internally and I can just scan. Yeah. But it's another when it's like, oh, somebody has a, a, a charge card and can mm -hmm. go and sign up for Amazon yeah. and yeah, set up a website and yeah. our, yeah. yeah. New yep. cloud range comes online, you know, acquisition of a company. Like these are all common 
uh, common uh, like kickoff points to the scope of your in internet presence kind of getting crazy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I we I did want to ask you. We talked about. I don't remember. I think it was a few episodes back, but we talked about and then showed uh, using this tool, uh, AMAS. I don't yeah, know. I'm just calling AMAS. Yeah, yeah. Have you or AMAS? Yeah. Have you um, used that? Do you have any opinions on that? I'm curious. Oh, it's it's one of the best tools in in the space for for uh, <laughs> identification. As long as you power it with the correct API keys, um, AMAS is you know it's. There's two in the open source community, which are the best ones, at least in my opinion. It's a mass and subfinder. Um, subfinder maintained by the Nuclei team, um, who makes the Nuclei scanner, which is the best open source vulnerability CVE checker scanner out there right now. And that that is just bar none. That's hard to argue. Um, and so they make a subfinder, and then um, and then a mass is you know an OWASP maintained project run by Jeff Foley, which is also the other one. So what I do in my personal recon for bug bounties is I just will run both. I will run both from a different VPS, cat, uh, cat the the findings of them both. Make sure they're supplied with the right API keys, and then um, unique the out the output. So yep, <clears throat> that that's what I was going to say, Ken. Yeah, if you like, and if if anybody hasn't read through the bug bounties. Hunter's methodology, I think that's what you call it, Jason. Yep. Yep. Uh, you should, right? Like, it, it's a great resource as far as getting started and actually having, again, again, a checklist of things that you do every single time to make sure that you, yeah, that you're covering your bases, right? Um, anyway, uh, Jason, uh, like, we don't want you to, you know, we're so grateful that you were able to jump on and give your opinion today, right? Like, oh, no worries. Thanks for having to, me. Yeah. Don't want to take up too much of your time since we, you know, we didn't schedule it out, but <laughs> we're, we're going to have to, we'll, we'll reach out to you um, another time. If you have, uh, you, you know, you have some more, you know, interest and we can go through like the bug hunters methodology and maybe a couple other things. Cause it's been a while since we've had you on the show. Yeah. It'd be awesome. In I'd a love formal it. context. So cool. Yeah. Cool guys. And Have a good so, morning. One, yeah, you too. Oh. Right, no, I was going to say one of us has been terrible at scheduling. This yeah, guy. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jason. That well, he's gone, <laughs> but yeah. still watching. Thank you, Jason. That was awesome. I really appreciate your time. Anytime we can pick your brain <laughs> is really a good time for us and for yeah. the audience. So we, I will. Man, I've just been awful about scheduling. Uh, it's just been a whirlwind of things going on in life. So um, anyways, that aside, um, huh, thanks, man. Um, but yeah, do check out Jace, Jason's uh, a Bug Hunter methodology um, document and, and resources. Um, it's funny, too, because when you read when you read through the first two parts of um, that methodology, it's like mapping and authorization and session handling. And I'm like, what is the first two things that go on? That in we our, do. Code yeah. review course. Yeah. We're part of the first four step, three or four steps. But anyways, it's, yeah, it's there. It's first three steps. So man, that's awesome. Um, all right. So then I guess the last part, what time is it? Okay. We still have eight minutes. So I did want to touch real quickly on the HA proxy um, so this was report. I'm gonna give two links here. I'm gonna give the the daily swig link, which okay. kind of talks about just a, at a high level what um, what was discovered in HA proxy in terms of request smuggling. Um, 
pretty valuable. But if you want the technical bits, and this is the part that I'm really interested in discussing, um, it is linked from that article. Um, it is the actual JFrog uh, write-up about this. So now, um, why is this one interesting? So the way that it, the way that uh, James Kettle's research presented request smuggling was to, and just real quick, I guess we'll just do a quick overview of what that means. Request smuggling is essentially, imagine you have a front-end server and a back-end server. And the front-end server is going to pass along some some requests, right? Usually, like, let's say it's a load balancer or some sort of reverse proxy or whatever it is. It's going to take some requests. It's going to create a single channel to the back end, and it's going to send multiple requests that, it, that it's receiving off through that one channel. And so if you can, if you can pick the, if you can trick essentially or cause a disruption between what the front end server sees as uh, individual requests and what the back end server sees as individual requests, you can cause some confusion. That confusion may allow you to reach services that you would otherwise not be able to research. Uh, sorry, reach services you would otherwise not be able to reach. Maybe like from that that front, you know, proxy. It 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 allows communication from the front proxy out to like other apps, for instance, right? Um, maybe it is getting different content return. Maybe it's having an XSS payload returned to a different user who, who had also sent a request, but now their request is confused with your request. And so the response therefore is confused and you get a response back or sorry, they get a response back that was intended for you. So that's the high level of request smuggling. And in the original write-up and research, um, the way it was performed was a difference between a content length and transfer encoding um, values. So what would happen is um, maybe the front end server would see the content length and say, okay, this is, I'm going to bundle up this request into an array of uh, bits and I'm going to send this off to the back end server. But, you know, then the back end server sees maybe like you know, this, this discrepancy, uh, maybe it's reading the uh, transfer chunked encoding bit. Um, those are the typical ways that it basically, you know, causing some confusion between what, what of what of this request is one request and what of this is multiple requests. That's basically what I'm saying. Now, what's interesting about this particular, uh, and let me take that off the screen and maybe even just share my screen because I think the visual could help um, yeah. quite a bit. So let me get this shared out and show people what's interesting about this version of the attack because it, it does differ slightly. It's it's the same attack, but executed a little bit differently, which is pretty awesome. So, okay. Should see um, what happens inside HA proxy. Let me expand this. Yeah. All right. So this is interesting right here. Um, imagine this attack. So the content length Zero AAA, all of all of that, right? The uh, intent is that you're going to follow a schema of eight bits, and so it should be under 256 characters, the content length itself, right? So going back to it, this content length header, you'll notice there's two content lengths. So if this content length, the top one that's got the zero and a whole bunch of A's, if this was either, um, I don't know. If these were different values, and, and this was actually a legitimate like content length colon some value, the first one, uh, it would just either, I think it just, HA proxy would just ignore the second content length um, there. 
and it would just be fine. It would just go with the first. I think actually that, that I might be wrong. The whole request might actually be rejected or it might just, uh, I, I can't remember. It might just drop the second content link. But what this does is it takes that 256 limitation. It's an actual integer overflow. So this is actually equals 270 bytes. So now you have 14 remaining and you see it goes on for a while. You actually have 14 remaining uh, uh, uh God, I can't talk today. Um, what am I trying to say? 14 remaining yeah. bytes or bytes, characters? Yeah. yeah bytes. Yes. Yeah. So that value gets stored as that overflow gets stored as a character at, for the value when it's represented. So basically, what I'm saying is HA proxy is going to see this content length header. It's going to see that there's like 14, like there's an overflow. So it's going to see like there's 14 characters left. Then it'll attach as it parses, it'll attach that those 14 characters left as an actual content length value, not the key of content length, but the actual value. Now this causes some confusion in the way that it gets parsed on the back end, because what's going to happen is this is going to, they show a conversion here. This is what it's going to look like. It's going to end up having that request have a content length of zero. So that remainder that we talked about that overflow amount turns this into a zero val value content length. So then this is interpreted as like, okay, there's nothing there. Oh, there's also another request here um, to the administrative dashboard. And perhaps maybe you couldn't get to the administrative dashboard unless you're originating that request from the proxy, right? That's kind of the, the, the thing that's going on here. So by creating an overflow situation in the content length, you actually cause HA proxy to have a parsing issue. And it talks about how it does this. It's like, you know, at phase two, while iterating over the blocks array, it sees the content length, reads 14 characters, forgetting the name and treats it as a legitimate content length header. So the, the actual name of the content length header being that overflow um, creates a value condition of zero. And then again, uh, what would what would uh, an application do if it saw a post request with a zero content length? It'd say, well, there's nothing else there to do. There's no body. So what else is there to do? Oh, hey, by the way, there's another request here. And that's essentially what's happening. It's getting snuck in. And I just thought that was a really cool way of uh, doing request smuggling. I just thought it was a little novel uh, way of doing it. And I, I suspect we're going to see a bit more of this, Seth. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, this all points to... Um, you know, protocol mismatch, uh, the research that, you know, James Portswigger guys have been doing into request smuggling. Um, and, you know, when we have different technologies that talk to, to each other, uh, this is exactly the problem that we have. A mistake in one of those technology leads to vulnerabilities in others because you are assuming that that first layer is protected, right? Like we have this idea of the hard outer shell. And if that hard outer shell fails, then all of a sudden we're not as protected or we, you know, we're allowing things to happen that probably shouldn't happen. Yeah. One of the questions we got last night at the OWASP meetup was um, how do you make a case to management about performing assessments of internal only applications and we went into a few of these things, but this is exactly what we're talking about. You have to assume that like your hard outer shell is, I mean, we don't design our networks anymore like that, where we're like, oh, as long as you have a, well, hopefully not. As long as you have a firewall and you do like software updates and 
you should be good, right? Like you, you've closed off connections internally, so you should be good. And in reality, it's like people click on links, people do things, uh, people make firewall changes. I don't know, things go wrong and people, you can't rely on that, that hard outer shell. But this is one of those cases where it kind of highlights that. It's like, well, if you have any, whether it's DNS rebinding or if it's request smuggling, there's always, or if it's just, you know, like I said, getting on someone's laptop, you've, you've got the ability um, once you're inside to access these apps. And if you haven't secured them, who knows what's lurking, right? So that's uh, for that yep. question. I think that's one way to address it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it is, I mean, it's interesting to see these novel bypasses come up because it, again, it shows that we don't necessarily test those edge cases as thoroughly as we probably should and number two uh this is an area of research that is just expanding and we're at the beginning of probably more and more of these coming out to your point uh that you know <laughs> there's more eyes being focused on the technologies that are sitting externally and how to utilize those and break through them to get access to that soft inner shell and I mean, between HAProxy, NGINX, the different redirect engines, uh, everything that exists out there on that hard, hard outer layer, it's easier to get through those custom setups and custom configurations than it is firewalls that have been in place and we, you know, understanding of the networking layer that's been around for 20, 30 years, right? So, yeah. Cool. Um well, good, Ken. We have been going for over an hour today. Uh, thanks wow. again to Jason Haddix for joining up last minute and getting his opinion on bug bounty stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I, like, is there anything else last minute that you want to talk about, Ken, before we close it up for today? No, we, uh, this has been a fun episode. And then, yeah. yeah, thank you, Jason. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, didn't, uh, pleasantly, uh, pleasant surprise today. So, yeah. Um, no, I just uh, remember, and, you know, I guess I could, let me just forefront it again. Um, this link right here, I put at the very, it's the very first chat message. Um, we will have James Kettle on next Tuesday. You know, we're talking about request smuggling. That's James's research. Um, James has done a ton of research. If you're watching this podcast, certainly you've heard his name. Um, so, you know, this is a good chance to pick James's brain. I know like we are very much looking forward to it. Um, so anyways, you could send whatever questions you want. I, I, we created a form. It's like got like a paragraph. So you can put multiple questions in there that you might want to ask uh, James and we'll, uh, we'll do that. So uh, yeah. All right. Good deal. Then please join the Slack channel. Um, it's also in the show notes today. Um, if you have other questions or you want to engage in the conversation further about the items that we talked about today um, and join us next week as we talk with James. Uh, yep. All right. Thanks everybody for joining today. We'll talk to y'all soon. Bye.